Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, we are back doing sections 46, 47, 48 of the Doctrine and Covenants. So I... I don't know that there is much meat in 47 and 48 for us to discuss. You know, as, as we've been going through the Doctrine and Covenants and then I've been reading a lot of the historical context, I'm realizing that like, I think I used to have this conception that like the Doctrine and Covenants was this, you know, exhaustive compilation of all of Joseph Smith's uh, revelations and prophecies. And it's like, it is not, <laughs> it, you know, they're, they're selected. <laughs> it's like selected revelations of joseph smith <laughs> it's the reader's and, digest version yeah 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 or or yeah selected readings you know it's like greatest hits right <laughs> <laughs> and even among the greatest hits so there's sometimes 47 and 48 you're like huh that's an interesting thing to put in here you get to 47 48 and you're like okay i see where this fits in the historical context of the church and i i see how this was an important revelation for joseph smith at the time but it doesn't inform at least i feel and and i I would I would be 100% open and fascinated to hear, you know, anybody else's like uh, modern or contemporary meaning that they pull out of this, you know, that 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 could really inform my relationship with God and I would be 100% open to that. I'm just saying this time going through it, I I didn't see much. There there was like a couple little things in there. I didn't see much out of them. But the opposite is a true of 46. I got this all marked up. And this is a great section. Returns to a theme that we see multiple times in scripture of the gifts of the spirit. And this, I think, is is pretty significant for this time in the church. The people are coming from all these different religious traditions, and they all have different ideas about what it means to practice religion, right? And and gifts of the spirit is is a big thing. It's it's very diverse in its understanding and practice among different denominations, right? And so this is a section that sort of defines how Latter-day Saints are to view these these gifts of the Spirit. However, I would take it as, you know, like in our uh, in our 2021 conception of gifts of the Spirit, is it okay to say that they're very watered down? <laughs> I mean, compared to compared to the the raw religious experience of the 1800s, our quote unquote gifts of the spirit, I would say, are very watered down. I don't say that they are less meaningful or or less um, impactful, but they certainly don't have that like you know holy roller aspect to them, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's almost taboo if we talk about them because you know in 27 we're going to find out the bishop has the gift of being able to discern the gifts of the spirit of the people in his ward and under his jurisdiction. Or it's given to him, yeah, yeah. Or it's given to him, right, to be able to, to determine that, to see if they're actually gifts of the spirit. And I think every single one of us, if we were in church, 
I can't say every single one of us. I can't say that for everybody. But for me, if, if someone were to stand up saying, I have the gift of tongues, or I have the gift of the interpretation of tongues, and you were to say that in church, I think that would be stranger than not. Not not that it, some people <laughs> yeah. in there would be like, you go. But I think, yeah, more often than not, that would probably be, be strange in our context. Yeah, we've definitely culturally morphed out of that, so to speak. And and there's actually a lot of historical reasons for it. Um, there's quotes from from Joseph Smith around this time and shortly after in the, the 1830s that talk about how, you know, there were a lot of members of the church that were really into the gift of tongues, right? This was a thing for them. This was a mode by which they experienced uh, God and, and expressed that, that experience. And I'd, it, it, there's, there's quotes by, by Joseph Smith on this that basically come to the effect of, Hey, you know, this just weirds people out too much. Don't do it. <laughs> <Right>. And, um, <laughs> and, and I think that what happened is you, you have a change of, of culture or whether it was directed or organic or not to the effect that this mode of experiencing God uh, no longer became a unifying mode. And so it was kind of left by the wayside because it, it didn't help the people as a whole an aggregate sense, uh, experience the spirit, how it might have originally been intended or how a select few did. And so, um, I think we single that, that gift of tongues thing out uh, a little bit because in the 1830s, gift of tongues, the conception of gift of tongues wasn't, wasn't what our, our modern church has rebranded it to be. And I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with how we've, we've rebranded it to be. I think there's some, some meaning and significance to that, but it's definitely not what 19th century Christians meant by the gift of tongues, right? Right. It did not mean you learned how to speak languages well. (laughs) (laughs) It meant that you essentially babbled, right? And you spoke in a tongue that nobody could understand unless you had what you called interpretation of tongues where they could understand it. And, and the idea would be that this was some, uh, what would be the word for it? You know, divine language, so to speak, language of the spirit that was only, only could be interpreted that way. It wasn't a human language, right? Is, is, is that kind of what, what you understand about that, that history? Yeah. There's a lot of that going on, especially in the camp revivals during that time. You know, the Methodist camp revivals going around the Baptist camp revivals. We kind of got to understand that at the time they had these things, it was kind of like what we call high church and low church. You know, the, the high church was your, you know, your very Puritan, your very high sophisticated, uh, well-trained clergy. And they may publish their sermon in the paper and man, you're, you're going to read this for like the next month. This is going to be something that they pull out that they refer back to that it's, it's very, very well uh, researched it's the the home teaching message in the ensign (laughs) yes but but like (laughs) highly advanced right and so you need a very very well-trained clergy in in the actual study of religion and of and of the theology and how to be able to write these things but then at that time we have starting really about the 1790s to the first of the 1800s this is where the Second Great Awakening comes up, and it really uh, takes hold up in uh, New York and in Virginia. And, and so the Second Great Awakening is when you have all of these unskilled and uneducated religious leaders that, you know, they grab a Bible. Some of them are even illiterate, and they've just memorized 
passages of scripture, but man, can they move an audience? Yeah. And so they'll get in there and, and, and they'll, and they just kind of get the crowd going and they, and they're able to really stir the emotion and really get these things, um, shaken up. And it's also through these times where people are, it's really the evangelical, the rise of the evangelical movement, because you had the Baptists, the Methodists, and the Presbyterians um, all in this evangelical, you know, they're evangelizing and, and really getting into these moments of, of ecstasy and, and, and just of, of these expressions of the spirit. And one of the popular ways of doing this was to, was to fall down for a day to there there's even records of people falling down into a trance for three days mm-hmm. and being completely almost catatonic some some people thought they were dead and they were just left on the roadside or they were taken in thinking they're i mean we're talking word for word like alma the younger style yeah, alma like the king younger Lamona. king lamona yeah. yeah yeah and so there's records of these things happening especially because the evangelicals had started to also include a lot of the black slaves into their uh, into the kind of the conversion process and into the church. So this is kind of where the 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 origins of the black church starts, pri- just prior to the Civil War. And also, they became more open to women's participation into these moments. And sometimes women were even allowed to preach, which was very very against so tradition. Progressive. <laughs> so progressive, and and so they have stories of like young women coming in and having these public displays of conversion where they would fall down and then they would come over and wake them up like after three days and they would stand up and they would start prophesying about Jesus. And so, yeah, this is, this is very much that kind of day and age. And among the people who are getting involved in this evangelical, evangelical uh, movement are experiencing these kinds of things. So yeah, when we talk about the, the gift of tongues, this is definitely one of the ways that that was expressed in those contexts. Yeah. You know, getting into the section in here, the, the section heading says something interesting than is played out in the text. It's not explicit, but it's implicit here. We say, let's see, in the section heading, it says, a custom of admitting only members and earnest investigators to the sacrament meetings and other assemblies of the church had become somewhat general. So the implication here, they say admitting only, was they didn't allow people who weren't trying to join the church or already joined the church into their meetings. And so that was their custom. We come in here, and one of the Lord's instructions in this section is to not cast anyone out of your public meetings, says verse 3. Nevertheless, ye are commanded never to cast anyone out of your public meetings, which are held before the world. And so this is taking it from more of a, a private church that um, had already been experiencing some of that persecution into trying to blow it up a bit, right? And and allow, open up this experience to everybody. The church has gotten enough numbers here. They're still in Kirtland. They're experiencing relatively little persecution based on, or compared to some of the stuff that happened in New York, and then some of the stuff they have no idea that's about to happen in Missouri. And so they're at a time when they can they can really kind of open things up a little bit and invite people in, try to share this experience and bring more people into the church. And it is pretty effective at the time at a lot of people in that area are searching, just like Sidney Rigdon and his whole congregation are searching for quote unquote, the true church, right? This, this restored uh, Christ. This is a very popular theme at the time. And so when you have this organization that, that really does seem to be having some success and has some, some good foundational narratives and, and man, it's got this whole new book of scripture, then it really kind of fuels that and brings a lot of people into the church at the time. 
Yeah, and going into verse four, you know, we covered this a little bit. If I if I remember, I want to know how much we covered. I should have listened back to uh, our discussion when we did Third Nephi. We did eighteen so to chapter eighteen, Third Nephi, where it did that sacrament. Yeah, we talked about the sacrament yeah. exactly, and yeah, and that whole discussion of worthiness and of and of how this is because in verse four it says. And also you are commanded not to cast anyone who belongeth to the church out of your sacrament meetings. Nevertheless, if any hath trespassed, let him not partake until he makes reconciliation. And this is a very prominent thing in our belief tradition. If, if there's been some kind of grievous sin, then, you know, and if the bishop deems, uh, this situation significant enough, then there might be a time appropriated. And we define things in terms of worthiness. I know we've, we've gone over worthiness quite a bit. But just to, to touch on it again briefly, you know, especially for our our uh, podcast here and and what we talk about is this idea of always already being worthy, and how sometimes this seems like it contradicts the scriptures when it talks about not partaking of the sacrament in our unworthiness. Or here, where it says, you know, if we've trespassed, let him not take until he makes reconciliation. We've talked over and over about how. Even in this state of being always already worthy, it's our perception that we're, when we sin, we are acting against the reality of what we are. And, and this becomes, it's called an epistemic state or a, a matter of perception. We've lost the perception of who and what we really are. The scripture that says, the light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not. We are the light and we don't comprehend what we even, what we even are. And so I think there's a lot of ways to take this whole worthiness or not allowing access to the sacrament or to Christ, because it seems like at times, if someone is in this place where they need a connection to God, why take away these things? Right. But in these moments, I see how the Lord is saying, listen, if you're in a state if you're in a state where you see me in a particular way, um, maybe let's step back a little bit and and readdress this, um, so that the meaning you're attached to doing this thing is resolved, so that you don't attach a wrong meaning to this. Not a corrupted meaning, yeah. It's not a corrupted meaning. That's one way I've thought about it before. Yeah. I, I don't, I'm not sold on that either, but. It's there's just a lot of ways. I guess at the end of it is there's a lot of ways that we can start to interpret the scripture as to what this is, but the whole metaphysical being not being worthy is just one that I've never found any really good fruit on. And conversely, that that narrative of always already being worthy and then learning to perceive that and repent. Not only is that more consistent with our definition of repentance in the Bible dictionary of learning to see God and ourselves and each other differently. We are always made in the image of God. We're, we are always already that being of light. We just act against that because we we have chosen not to act according to that. So there's a lot of different ways to be able to interpret that. Yeah, I mean, I remember when we had the discussion in, of chapter 18, 3 Nephi, and, and I know that there's a policy in the church of of it being like an 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 active maybe an active forbidding or you know the bishop saying don't partake of the sacrament. When I read Third Nephi eighteen through this last time, I actually got a a different something different came out of it to me. And 
And I actually, when I read through this, I, I see it a little differently as well. And it says, you know, in, in 3518, it says, let not anyone partake of the sacrament unworthily. And we can take that to mean, okay, well, if they're not worthy, then you don't let them take the sacrament. Or we can take it to mean that if a person doesn't feel they are worthy, it is your responsibility to go to them and preach the gospel to them about who Christ is and what their relationship can be so that they recognize their worthiness for the love of God. So they recognize that they are worthy to partake of Christ because that's how they reconcile themselves to God is by partaking of Christ. So I see this verse here. If you have, if any have trespassed, let him not partake until he makes reconciliation. So I envision a bishop following this and, and third Nephi 18 as if he knows of anyone who isn't taking the sacrament because they don't feel they are worthy to that the bishop go to that person and persuade them out of the love of God to do it and to do it with that intention of partaking of the love of God, of the body of Christ. And that if that's the case, that's how they're reconciled to God. And that that it would be the role of the bishop to go find that one, to leave the 99, go find that one and bring them in and say, no, you do belong here. You are worthy of the love of God. And you do belong in this ordinance experience with us. So partake of it. And that's how you don't suffer anyone to partake of it unworthily. Because when you persuade them to take of it, they are recognizing their worthiness. So like you said, it's a little bit more of an epistemic change rather than some like uh, conventional behavior change, right? The worthiness is a, a perception change rather than a behavior change. And when the perception changes, the behavior will follow, not the other way around. Yeah, I think it's really consistent with verse 7, too, because it really starts to bring in this new way of looking at God. But ye are commanded in all things to ask of God, who giveth liberally, and that which the Spirit testifies unto you, even so I would that you should do in all holiness of heart, walking uprightly before me, considering the end of your salvation, doing all things with prayer and thanksgiving, that ye may not be seduced by the evil spirits and the doctrines of the devils or the commandments of men. And some are men and others are devils. It's a great verse. It is a great verse. It, it, I mean, it's, it's packed with so many different meanings and so many different things we could talk about. But what stands out to me is that the Lord is inviting us into recognizing who we are. We are beings of holiness, right? That holiness of heart, uprightness, and the and to consider the salvation the end of what we're doing and to being beings of prayer one of the things we've talked about a lot is this prayer narrative and about how many different types of prayer there are and i've talked a lot about how in my life different forms of prayer have transitioned and i have found different ways of being able to communicate with god that land for me in in deeper ways than than others 
And what, what I found is that as I've been able to let go of narratives or of expectations that prayer should be this way and this way only, or that prayer should be this way primarily and then everything is secondary, when, when I let go of the, the primacy of what type of prayer should be and simply started to explore the many different types of prayer that landed for me, that connected me with God, suddenly in doing that, going back to my other prayers in the more formulaic way, were, were more meaningful. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I love this in God recognizing and, and inviting us to recognize that we are beings of prayer and of thanksgiving so that those seductions of evil spirits, and this goes back to our conversations of Satan as the accuser, those feelings and those voices and those promptings from the adversary, from Satan, from that accusing voice to, to looking at ourselves and others in these ways that we're able to set those narratives aside. God tells us to focus on things that are holy, to look on things that bring us salvation, those things which put us in a spirit of prayer and of thanksgiving, because in those moments and in those those virtues and in those actions and ways of being, we are the, the power of those other voices lose their effectivity. This is interesting here. You know, you mentioned the doctrines of devils. I think it does go along with what you were talking about in terms of the accusing and turning us away from God, any of those things, sort of the tips we're given here for avoiding that is thanksgiving. I think gratitude really is a very powerful thing in allowing us to align ourselves with God and sort of empty, right? To um, it's a, It's a humbling thing. It's one of the one of the best ways to sort of arrive at, at uh, more humility is to just be grateful for for what there is for the blessings and as you look around and you start recognizing or realizing all the blessings that there are then it's sort of a, a an awakening to the grace the mercy of god that is all around you and is always there and as you recognize all of that, you know, it, it helps dispel any other types of seductive influences. It says, you know, seduced by evil spirits or doctrines of devils, anything that would, would try to tell you you're unworthy of, of the blessings that you see all around you or tell you that your relationship with God is contingent on XYZ, these accusations. And then I, 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 it's interesting here that he adds in commandments of men, you know, because this is reminiscent of New Testament stuff where, where Christ got after Pharisees and Sadducees, the Jews, for a lot of these commandments that they had built up around the law, right? The law, the great commandments of loving God and loving your neighbor, all these other things that had been built up around it, these commandments of men, that rather than guiding us to those great commandments of loving God and loving your neighbor actually ended up barring us from them. Rather than being paths to them, they were fences around them. (laughs) And um, we really need to examine either rules that we set up for ourselves or even things that we might call commandments and evaluate them. Are these things acting in my life as a path to 
a relationship with God, or are they acting in my life as a fence, as as a commandment of men? And I don't think that there's anything like uh, objectively that you could just say, okay, this commandment is a commandment of men and this commandment isn't. I think that any given thing that we might identify could be spiritual in nature, like could be from God if we're, we're, we allow the intentionality to direct us to that. But if we focus on it in a thing as a thing in and of itself, in like a transactional way, then it's a fence, you know, that we have to overcome before we can access God. You know, we have to get over this commandment and we have to master it and then we can access God. And that's not the purpose of commandments, right? They're to lead us to, they're not to be an obstacle in the way that Unless we overcome them, we can, you know, get to God. And so I, I like how, uh, you know, before we were talking and you, you really mentioned this uh, verse 33 at the end, practice virtue and holiness before me continually. And I think that is one of the keys there in, in transforming any given quote unquote commandment into something that, that leads us to a relationship with God rather than, you know, fences us off from it. Yeah, I like a lot of what you said there because commandments, we always look at commandments as like these prescriptive rules. Commandments are these things we follow and, you know, you and I, we've had conversations like this going back 10, 15 years because I I remember having conversations back in our BYU days where we differentiated between commandments that we do and commandments that we keep. And and commandments that we keep are kind of these more descriptive commandments than commandments that we do where those like Nephi kills Laban supposedly, or is that's you know that's like a go-to commandment that I've heard talked about a lot. That's, I don't know why that's the go-to, and everyone's like, I th- I mean, it might be because of the song. I will go and do right. You know, we think of Nephi, and it's like, what did Nephi do that nobody else had ever done? Well, he killed somebody. He's like, well, God told him to. So yeah, I think that's why that's the, the analogy there. But when we look at commandments, the older I get, I look at commandments far more descriptively than I look at them prescriptively. And what that means is it's commandments are far more of a blueprint to what already is as a, I don't know if it's like a blueprint or more like an image of just like what already is, as opposed to this, uh, this thing of like what can be, because if we always are what we already are, it's an awakening to an awareness of what is. We've talked a lot about the idea of becoming and and the more and more I think about it, the way that we talk about becoming, I don't think there's anything like inherently wrong with it, but we talk about it metaphysically, almost like we talk about like a, so I was in pest control for a lot of years. So, so there's like insects that have like metamorphic cycles, yeah, you know, they go yeah. from like egg to like larvae and pupa and then, and then they come to it. And so at this particular stage, you have these, these bugs, they go through stages and they, and they're becoming physically something else. We, th- we think in those terms because we look at our physical body and then we imagine what we think our Heavenly Father with His perfect body looks like and we don't have that, so we're going to become something that we are not. And so right. in that way, I, I get it how we talk about it in those terms. But also, when we recognize the essence of our, of our, you know, we're still debating in our day and age what consciousness is. Like, what is this consciousness thing that we have that's still not a settled debate. Philosophers have right. been <laughs> arguing this forever. And like, what what is the true, where do we house the true I- core of our identity? Is is it, you know, when, when I look at my hand and I see my hand, I'm like, that's me. That's a part of, I'm like, well, it's a part of me. 
I'm like, okay, so I can lose my hand and am I still me? I'm like, sure, I can lose my hand and I'm still me. I'm like, well, what can I lose of this thing that I call me and still be me? And so, you know, we start like dwindling down body parts until it's like the, the most basic functions of of things. I'm like, well, am I my heart? Am I my liver? Am, am I just the parts of me? Or is there something that I'm the the accumulation of all of these things? What actually constitutes this thing that I call Shiloh? What is this identity? And, and who am I really? And where do I house that identity? And how can I, I how can I even identify where I house my identity. Anyway, this gets really, really <laughs> crazy, really fast. And, and I don't want to get bogged down into it other than to say that when we start to recognize commandments as, as like blueprints for like who we can become, it gets really sticky really fast because, you know, we're obviously talking about something that is not physical or, you know, this becoming, we're not talking about something physical. It, it's something deeper than that. It's something usually far more spiritual. And then when we get into those terms, that's where we start recognizing that we're made in the image of God. We are already made in the image of God. And he created all things spiritually before they were created physically. And when he created us, being created in the image of God, we were created in the image of love and of mercy and of compassion and gentleness and meekness and all the characteristics. of. And so this is where I see commandments now as more of a description of of our awakening to who and what we really are and anything that doesn't lead to that awakening i don't i don't know if that's a a rule or just or if that's actually constitutes a commandment because i see commandments kind of in this category of those things that awaken us to who we are that help us repent and everything else is kind of more just superfluous rulemaking to try you know like the law of moses stuff of only taking so many steps on sunday and those rules and commandments, you know, they were supposed to train the mind and the heart to be able to to think about the things of God so that everything was done with intention and purpose and, and, and that intentionality and that purpose. What happened was, is all of a sudden they deified the law itself so that the rule became like the thing in itself. And breaking the rule was against God. I'm like, what? Well, I've never thought, even as a child, when I thought you can only take so many steps on Sunday, like that wasn't necessarily, God doesn't, God didn't care if you weren't taking so many steps. It was, we're doing this because this is what brings us into, in our context, into a way of focusing on God. Yeah, you've talked about it as a mode, you know, that if that if that thing you're doing is a mode for you to experience a relationship with God, then good, that's good, but don't let it become a thing in and of itself that if you don't do it, it's barring you from God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and sadly, I know so many of us with COVID have felt the kind of the pain, as it were, about not being in the temple. And because, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, myself included, you know, we go to the temple as often as we can because we find joy and we find a spirit and, and rejuvenation there. But I've also heard a lot of, uh, kind of in excess, this, I can't feel God unless I'm in the temple. Yeah. And and I need to get to the temple so I can feel God. I, I haven't felt God. And and the point is, is that no, God is all around us. God is here now. And the temple may help us focus and be a mode and, and a totem for us to focus the intentionality of the God that is always around us. And there's a very real power and beauty there. 
But God is always there with us. And so, yeah, it's it's recognizing and awake, coming into an awakening there. You know, in verse 8, it says, Wherefore, beware lest ye are deceived, and that ye may not be deceived. Seek ye earnestly the best gifts, always remembering for what they are given. And I, and I, I like that. I have, to, I have to admit that in my own life, I may not have earnestly sought out gifts of the Spirit. There have been times in my life where I've tried to identify what gifts I have and maybe tried to cultivate those in particular times, but to be consistently active in seeking to develop these, if I'm completely honest, I may have so I have a lot of work to do here, personally, <laughs> in my own life. Or maybe you haven't sought the best gifts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and there, you know, there's a lot to say when we get to uh, the word of wisdom. There, there's quite a few things about the word of wisdom, or not the word of wisdom, but of, you know, that too, but of uh, speaking in tongues. But I love here that we're not deceived. And I love the context here in what we've talked about with these brand new saints in their brand new context, in their brand new place. Uh, there's no Mormon, quote unquote, Mormon identity. And, and I mean that for their time and place. I get the whole Mormon thing nowadays. But they have no identity as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In fact, the the name, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, didn't even exist at this time, and it wouldn't right. exist for another seven years. So people called them Mormon for the Book of Mormon, and, and so they uh, they went with it. But their way of looking at their identity, uh, it, it wasn't formed yet. This We are currently forming identity here, so... So I love that the gifts of the Spirit now are going to be refocused in the minds of these early saints so that now they have something to pour their intentionality into. Now they can have something that they can actively focus on. Because in the previous uh, section that we went over uh, we went over a couple weeks ago was about, uh, you know, we talked about how they repeated the commandments to not lie, to not steal, to not kill, to not commit adultery. And you're like, what was going on there that they had to repeat these things twice? But there's one thing for us in our lives to not do something bad. And this is for me, like, like whenever I, whenever I like uh, get on like a fast food kick for several days and I'm just like chow, chowing down on fast food, and I'm starting to feel not a hundred percent. And uh, I've, I've done one too many visits to Taco Bell, if that's a thing, but nope. Nope. <laughs> but if, if I've done one too many visits to fast food, it sometimes it's hard for me to stop because, because I do, I, I love, I love, I, I just, I, I like Mountain Dew. I've always liked Mountain Dew, <laughs> but it's in that time for me to stop doing something is more difficult than if I start doing something else and crowd out what I was doing before. Sure. It's easier for me to crowd out than it is for me to stop cold turkey. And in a lot of ways, I see almost that's the same thing what's going on here. It's it's okay for God to come out and say, listen, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. I tell my kids that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. Um, but also to refocus and say, but do this. And to give something to focus on. Because a lot of the times we target fixate, even if it's on righteous things. And so I like that this verse, this section comes along in the context of these early saints, giving them so- something to focus on. Yeah, not just don't go this way, don't go this way, don't go this way. And then you're just standing there not going anywhere. <laughs> it's like, okay, go this way. Okay, I'll go that way. Yeah, I, you, you know, I, I liked what you were talking about earlier in terms of becoming. And and I've just inserted another word in there, just becoming aware. 
right? That's what we're doing. We're, we're becoming aware of who we are. So the, the Latter-day Saint narrative of the pre-mortal life is that we all knew who Christ was, who God was. We had a, a pretty good, solid understanding of what this plan of salvation, quote unquote, was. So as the narrative goes, uh, when it was presented to us, it was like, oh yeah, of course, this makes total sense. And we understand what this is. We trust Christ. He's the way, you know, he's going to make this all possible. And we're going to go through with this and, and do all of this. And in Revelation says we overcame um, by the testim- by our testimony of the blood of the Lamb. Within that narrative, we already were in an understanding of who God really was in a relationship with him and Christ. And so our entering into a mortal state was a a loss of that awareness of that relationship, but it wasn't a loss of the relationship per se, or of who we were at our being, you know, so, th- so the narrative goes, whatever, whatever our essence is of our intelligence existed before and entering into mortality, that, that essence still was there and still existed. It didn't go away. It's just our awareness of who we were and our relationship with God had went through some sort of change and we don't really know <laughs> what it was. Um, but, you know, in this life, I, I like formulating it more not as we're becoming, like we're becoming something different. It's that we're becoming aware of who we really are and our true identity and our relationship with God. And when that is put in the context of these new experiences we're having in mortality, it elevates a meaning and an understanding that we didn't have before. And so that is what is added, quote unquote, to that concept. And so I do uh, think that narrative of the becoming in terms of like uh, metamorphosis into something that is different than, than what it was before um, is, is not as a helpful or consistent narrative as, as the one where um, in the context of our premortal life, we're actually just becoming you know, relearning or becoming aware of something that we already are, or that we already know. Yes. I love that. Going through the, the gifts of the spirit here, there's quite a few of them. And I don't know if we should just read them or, or just kind of pick out a few that if we just pick out a few that we, uh, we see here, but to start off, it says, and verily I say unto you, I would, that you should always remember and always retain in your minds what those gifts are that are given unto the church. For all have not every gift given unto them, for there are many gifts, and to every man is given by the gift and power by the Spirit of God. Okay, so each one of us have at least one of these gifts, and it is within our power to be able to cultivate them and to take these before the Lord. And and I think that's going to be a, a very intimate relationship and a moment for us to be able to take those, take the time of taking this to the Lord. And for those who, who really kind of grasp a hold, as I said, this hasn't been something that's been what we would call one of my strong suits in like actively and engaged, being engaged in developing these specifically and intentionally. But I love it says, to some is given one and to some is given another, that all may be profited thereby. To some it is given by the Holy Ghost 
to know that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that he was crucified for the sins of the world. To others, it is given to believe on their words, that they also might have eternal life if they continue faithful. Now, I, I love that. I, I love, you know, right out the gate, I love that the context there that a lot of us think that we we need to be the ones to go out there and to actively proclaim and to be the ones that are actively proclaiming this message. I know. Yeah. Yeah, I know because I know that I know. And yet, on the other side of that, there's a balancing of an equation there. And to others, it is given to believe on their words. And that is as legitimate and as powerful and as every bit as equal to the gift of actually saying it. That's really, that's a really powerful idea. That is something there, you know, and those are the exact same, the things that I, I didn't just underline, I like boxed colored in that. And I wrote in the side, you know, what is the difference here? What is the difference between knowing that Christ is the son of God and he was crucified for the sins of the world and believing on the words of others? And I actually had to ask myself, like, which one am I here? <laughs> and I think it really just kind of depends on how you want to, how you want to define no, right? And <laughs> there's, there's philosophy for you. <laughs> because I, at times in my life, I could say, yeah, the, you know, I know that, but it always just comes back to the question, well, what do you mean by you know it? And some of that is, is uh, you could say, you know, by certain experiences, you've had certain experiences where this, this knowledge seems to, to really fit with your experience. And so it, it becomes solidified in that way. But I, I think that, um, that this is largely a matter of, of where we are in our, in a spiritual journey. And that I don't know that uh, any given person is just one or the other. I think that there's been times in my life where I might have had the gift to know, and there might have been times in my life where I didn't have that gift. I just had the gift to believe. And what is so profoundly amazing about this to me is that it doesn't matter. Like <laughs> both of these gifts are manifestations of the love of God and are 100% acceptable to him. It's almost like, you know, the parable of the the workers in the vineyard. You know, it's like, it doesn't matter. It, you all going to get the same wages, right? <laughs> we all receive everything that God has to give us, whether we have this gift to know or this gift to believe. All receive, it says, eternal life. Yeah, as you were talking, Ben, I was thinking something came to mind where I have as well been on both sides of those equations uh, on the the believing in someone's words and in the speaking of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. I've I've been you know I've I've been a full time missionary. I've also been on the receiving end. I studied philosophers. I've studied historians, and there are people who I believe on their words. There's one documentary on Leonard Arrington by an author, Gregory Prince. And he has a section in this, uh, in this biography of Leonard Arrington, who was the church's first uh, non-general authority historian in the seventies. Mm -hmm. And Leonard Arrington is, is just 
he's just a, a, a mountain of a man. This, this guy was just incredible in every possible way. And Greg Prince has this chapter in Leonard Arrington's biography. He's like the Hugh Nibley of church history, huh? Yeah, he's like, yeah, it, a great comparison, <laughs> right? Um, because of Leonard Arrington, church history is what it is today. Right. I mean, he he really is the rock that uh, church history is built on, and, and that they really kind of started this whole thing. But in his biography, there's this chapter on the the, the nineteen seventy eight church proclamation about all worthy male men having the priesthood and about the way that that came about as kind of seen through Leonard Arrington's eyes as the church historian at the time and, and about how this came out and how he tried to document this case. And he and Greg Prince went through and it's a really long explanation. I'm not going to go over the whole chapter, but that was one of the first times that I came across a history book where I looked at it and I'm like, this this is the way that religious history should be written. It was it, it was one of the most beautiful chapters on church history that I've ever read. And in that moment, I know I was in that believing category. I was soaking this in. And it really had a powerful impact on me when I read it. And on other times, as I said, I've been on, on the other side. Thought about the show The Chosen. Yeah. And for those who've who've seen The Chosen, they just have season two out now. And Man, I'm so good. I, it's so good. Oh, it's so good. I know I don't want to be that guy who goes around and be like, it's so good. You know, if anybody hasn't seen it and they're tired <laughs> of everybody telling him how good it is, I'm so sorry. But it's really so good. And and, and I hate overselling things because it's never you never seem to think it's as good as it really is. <laughs> you gotta go see this movie. I went and thought it was dumb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one of those things. But uh I, I've gotta say I was very apprehensive when I first came to seeing the chosen um i was not originally sold on it for the first it's it, it, each season is eight episodes i was not sold on it for the first four episodes but by the end of the series i just i, I t to this day i still get weepy every single episode there's something that happens and it's like bam and it gets and the church is really supported um the second season it it, it, it opened up the uh the set down there uh, you know, the Jerusalem set they filmed the Book of Mormon on. So the whole second season is filmed in Utah. Anyway, the very last episode of season one, there's this, it's, it's one of my top three favorite New Testament stories of the woman of the well. Mm -hmm. And I love, I love, I love how they did that segment and how, and how they portrayed that. It's my favorite portrayal of the woman of the well, woman at the well. And in that Jesus is the Messiah tells this woman everything that she has done wrong. She, he tells her her guilt. And she looks at him and, I, I perceive you are a prophet. You've just, you're telling me everything that I'm guilty about. The, the, the Savior, the Messiah, is telling her everything that she's accusing herself of and that everybody's accusing her of. He's identifying all the ways that Satan is accusing her. And in... In it, he he tells her all of these things, and she gets so excited. And in and in uh, and in John, and also in in that episode, she re begins to recognize that this is the Messiah, and she goes and she runs into the city, shouting, "Come see a man who has told me who has told me everything that I have ever done." And so she runs into the city shouting, 
Come see the man who has told me everything I've ever done. You know, this is the sin. This was the accusation voice. This was the accusatory voice. This was the thing that had condemned her and had brought her down low. And Jesus had identified it. And then he flips the script on her. And now that accusing voice is, he has told me everything that I have ever accused myself of. How glorious is this? And in that, I see very much this believing in the words of the Savior. He has told her everything. She is in that state of belief of everything that he has told her. And then when it cuts to the very first episode of season two, and I'm not giving anything away because it's just, <laughs> but it shows this woman again and she's in the city and everyone, and she's like, did I tell you that he is, he told, and then everybody's like, yes, yes, he told you everything. <laughs> he told you everything that you've ever done. And at that point, now she's the one testifying. Yeah. And now other people are on the receiving. And so I, I think the, we're going to find out in these gifts of the Spirit, we come in and out of a lot of these. And maybe that's why we have to be consistently and put and uh, persistent in, in following into these so that we recognize these gifts of God when they come. And so we begin to realize that God is always there in these moments. It's not just that you're going to be able to be testifying of Jesus and you're just going to testify of Jesus for the rest of your life. But you may very well be on the other receiving end of that as well, as, as much if not more than, than you were testifying of it. And isn't that glorious? You know, one, one little point I wanted to bring out about verse 11, it says there are many gifts. In every lesson that I've been in where gifts of the Spirit are are discussed, there's always been somebody that brings kind of this point up saying, hey, this is not an exhaustive list, right? And and so we're charged with discovering gifts of the Spirit that are are to us and they may be very unique. But and so this this isn't an exhaustive list of all of the gifts that the Spirit gives, right? I think that's an important point for us to to realize here. So we've got gift of uh, differences of administration, diversity of operations. You know, can, can I, can, can I, I really just say know. I I don't have I don't have that gift. Yeah, <laughs> I know people that do. Yes, I do too. And and the operations thing as well, you know. And and I, I've seen that. Uh, I've definitely seen that exhibited. The word of wisdom person that comes to mind for me uh, when when I read about this gift is my dad because i've i've heard him give many great counsel to people very wise words another is given the word of knowledge that all may be taught to be wise and have knowledge this is interesting because i was listening back to the podcast we did a couple weeks ago and, and we kind of talked about knowledge and about how knowledge isn't complete without also that awe and wonder of God. So I, I thought this was interesting to kind of come across this as as a spiritual gift. And and I think it's really important in the context of what you, what you were just talking about, that we sort of come in and out of these gifts sometimes. And so it's okay for us to experience something that's a state of knowledge, and then to come out of that state, and to sort of be maybe in a state of what we might call doubt. And it's okay for us to be in flux between those because the spirit will manifest itself differently to us at at different times so that we can learn to understand better our relationship with God. 
And uh, I might have referenced it before, but I really like the the contemplation podcast that was done by Riley and Christopher on doubt, how they talk about it, you know, not as the opposite of this certainty or, or knowledge uh, or faith, sorry, not as the opposite of faith. It might be the opposite of certainty, but not as the opposite of faith, but a companion to it that kind of walks hand in hand with it so that, you know, you can proceed and take every step with doubt and then faith and then doubt and then faith. And I kind of see this spiritual gift of knowledge as being kind of part of that, you know, that the spirit may, may manifest it in itself in you. And in that moment, you have knowledge, right? And then maybe that departs and at, for a time and, and you have a different gift or something. And I, and that's okay. It's kind of reminiscent of Moses's experience. I, I always refer back to this because the book of Moses is probably just my favorite. But, um, <laughs> you know, Moses has that moment, this moment of, of just like the most amazing experience you can have. God shows him the universe, right? <laughs> like, and then he, he comes back to himself and he sinks to the earth, right? He has this, he has knowledge to infinity, right? He sees everything at least, you know, all of the earth and every particle. And he has this knowledge, this this experience with it. And then that departs from him and he falls down. And he's like, oh, I'm nothing, right? I think it's important for us to recognize that even if we have that spiritual manifestation that we, that we experience that knowledge, it's okay if that departs. That doesn't mean that we didn't actually ever have it. Um, it just means that the spiritual gift is manifesting itself in us from time to time in different ways so that we can have different experiences. Yeah, I want to sit on that for a little while. I have some things I'm going to think about that. Oh, thank you. I mean, you know, moving on, you know, the word of wisdom here, I, I, I love that you brought up your dad. <laughs> I agree. The con- I've had many conversations with your dad, and uh, I don't know if I've ever had a conversation with him where I haven't walked away thinking, Oh man, I've, there's just so many like just, just little sound bites of, of just the way he phrased it and he, and he talked about things. So yeah, I, definitely a blessing to anytime you get to talk with him. The uh, the word of knowledge, faith to be healed, and the, I love how so many of these are relationship wise. Yeah. It, it's in a relationship. You know, we talked about to to prophesy and to believe. You know, the faith to be healed and the faith to heal. Um, again, to some is given the working of miracles, and to others it is given to prophesy, and to others the discerning of spirits. You know, each one of these, we can probably spend hours on each one of these. Yeah. You know, going down to verse 24, this is kind of where I've been making my way. We're, we're kind of, we're towards the end of the list, but it, in speaking with tongues and the interpretation of tongues, two, two differentiating tongues here, you know, and I think you brought it up correctly in that culturally we look at the gifts of tongues in a very missionary training center kind of way as we are learning to speak a foreign language to go out to 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 talk with people right because there are so many missionaries who are speaking a foreign language now i came to california english speaking but there were definitely some who i felt i had to like have some kind of different extraness to be able to to communicate with them you went to Italy on your mission so so you have a little bit more probably of that experience but there are always always those times where missionaries often experience being able to transcend their own capabilities in the moment they need to, to communicate a message to someone. And those are very powerful moments, but on a more day to day experience, 
I've recognized you know, there's things I've studied on the topic over the years that have that have brought in this new understanding and this new idea that the gift of tongues is the power and ability to be able to communicate with another person what they need to hear to be able to connect with God. That gift of tongues is the ability to communicate and to be understood. I can't tell how many times I've been in a situation where I have thought I was saying one thing and I had intended to say one thing and the other person understood something completely different (laughs) from what I was saying. And it's terribly frustrating. And in this type of regard, this is how Hugh Nibley even think how he thought that the, the idea of the Tower of Babel with the whole changing of the languages, how it happened. Yeah, that's a fascinating idea, how he formulated that. I, I, I think there's some to that, yeah. Right. And how that basically works out is, is not that all of a sudden there was a breakup to where now these, this group is speaking Hebrew and that group is speaking Arabic and this person is speaking, you know, Germanic and that one over there is speaking Chinese or whatever. It's that they were using the same words, but the language had become corrupted so that you can use the same words, but there are, you are so radically understanding them in different ways that you have lost the ability of connecting to another human being through your shared language. That you have so many ideas and identities and emotions about the other person and so many expectations onto their intentionality and what they're trying to do, that no matter what the other person says, you can you will never be able to get their meaning and they will never be able to get yours. You may be speaking the exact same language, but the words you are trying to communicate are not the words that they are receiving and understanding. And in this, I see the power of to speak with the with tongues as that ability to bridge human understanding, to connect with another human being to where what you are saying is what is being received and what is understood. And in doing that, especially in this context, to speak and to bring someone into a conversation with God and about God, that even though you may have two completely different lived experiences— And otherwise, you might completely talk past each other. That in that moment, you connect to where you're on this. Call it the same wavelength. Call it the same frequency. Call call it whatever you will. But you connect. And you know you connect. And, And those times in my life, I've had those experiences where I knew exactly what that person was saying. It was speaking directly to me. And it was, an, it was, a, and so I went up, and some people I've gone up and I've talked with them afterwards, especially in like a group setting, maybe at church or like a, a teacher. I've gone up, and you know, it was this what you meant, and they're like, "That's exactly what I meant." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's the way it completely landed for me." And it, it's in that kind of intimate relationship where you begin to to connect with another human on a on a level that you are now communicating truth about God in a way that was intended, and the way that was intended was received. It's a really powerful moment. Yes, exactly that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you were talking about the Tower of Babel and 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 how it wasn't that they were necessarily speaking different like vocabulary language, 
all of the the sounds, you know, the linguistic phonetic sounds were the same and the words were the same. But it's something that I've kind of realized lately that like if you take something somebody says and you then assign to it any given intention, that thing that they said can mean anything you want it to mean based on whatever intention you assign to it. And so when you get two people that are talking to each other and they are speaking quote unquote the same language, but they both assume in the intention of the other person as something evil or adversarial, then they will never understand each other, no matter how much they talk. And how is that not a description of our political landscape? Right? You get two people talking politics, and they will never understand each other. They're speaking the same language, but the intentions that they assume about the other person are so steeped in an other narrative or an enemy narrative that they will never truly understand that other person. They just talk past each other. And so along with this this gift of tongues, I think that definitely is the heart of it. I've seen it manifested. I've had several experiences, but one in particular that I want to, to share that was uh, manifested in a, a way that's a little more consistent with the uh, what we might call the LDS cultural narrative behind the gift of tongues. And it was when I was a missionary, but so I was, I was in Italy, but I, I was street contacting people and there was a, a woman that I came across and started talking to her and I realized she didn't speak Italian. She was from Argentina and she spoke Spanish. Well, I had taken a bit of Spanish in in high school and and kind of dabbled with it uh, here and there, but I didn't really have the vocabulary um, or the the grammatical structure that I needed for Spanish. Italian really helped with it, but uh, there was so much missing. But I decided I needed to talk to this woman. I ended up I had a Book of Mormon in Spanish with me and. I started talking to her. I explained a little bit about the book, what the Book of Mormon was, and we were having a conversation back and forth. And I just saw it in her eyes that she was getting everything that I was saying in my terrible Spanish. And I became aware for a split second that I was speaking far above my actual ability in Spanish. And saying things clearly and in a way that I did not really know how to say. And I, she she accepted the book. It was a great, uh, amazing exchange. And she went on her way. I was in a city that I wasn't assigned to. I was just there, you know, doing exchanges. Didn't have any contact information. I don't know that that woman ever contacted any missionaries. But I knew in that moment that that woman needed an assurance that God knew who she was and loved her, that she was in a country that wasn't her own. She had come there to work and she was alone and wondering really what her purpose was. And she ran across someone who could speak her language, someone completely unexpected, this white skinny boy from 
the United States all of a sudden was speaking her language and she could understand it perfectly. And she felt that God loved her. And she knew that in that moment. And I walked away from that, never speaking Spanish anywhere near like that again, except I knew that God loved that woman enough to make that happen. And it was a, uh, it was a very special experience. Something quite like that I've never, never experienced since. Yeah, I remember you telling me that story oh, 15 years ago. I've always loved hearing it. The, you know, I, that's exactly what we're talking about here because that's one of the ways upon which this gift is manifest. You, for that split second, you connected with her. She connected with you. And it was in that moment when it was just that experience of God. It, it happens in, in Sunday schools. It happens in personal conversations. It can happen with your spouse. It can happen with your children. Children, you know, I've told a story about one of my daughters who, who I, I was just not connecting with. You know, this is years and years ago. She was like six. <laughs> at the time <laughs> and she's definitely my most extroverted child and the one who's just all out there all the time and we just weren't connecting and and through praying and one morning there were a series of events happened and and we connected immediately after after a series of events one morning and that gift of tongues you know there was a lot of talking that went on but there was a lot of other things too and so when I look at the gift of tongues, I, I see this in very general terms, but it's anything that truly connects one person with another person in the intended meaning and understanding of that relationship. Mm -hmm. Man, that's a beautiful thing when that comes together. In verse 27, we see that it says, Under the bishop of the church, and, under the, and unto such as God shall appoint and ordain to watch over the church and to be elders unto the church, are to have given unto them to discern all those gifts, lest there shall be any among you professing, and yet be not of God. And it shall come to pass that he that asketh in the Spirit shall receive in the Spirit. Now this goes back again to our conversation about the Lord giving these people something to focus on. And when we, you know, just there are conversation right now of, of looking at these things and about how we can, how we can focus on each one of these gifts, it really does open up a very powerful discussion into how God interacts with us, into how the divine comes in very special and very specific and, I don't know if temporal is the word I want to use, but in, in these moments in, in our temporal experience where we recognize that these moments stood out from the mundane, that these moments often stand out to us as something other than the regular life. And we see them, we glimpse them. I've talked about it in terms of glimpsing before, because for, mm. for, for, me, for me, it's not like I can see the whole view of God's plan. I've never had that happen to me. But I have had moments in my own personal subjective vantage point my little own personal vignette, as it were, where it's like God opens up a frame, like a single frame, where I'm able to just like view like one frame of just a blip. And it's 
there's been a couple of experiences actually where I missed it as I as like I as like I experienced this thing and then it, like two maybe three minutes later, I was like, wait, what what what, what was that? And and so I go in, you know, I'll, I'll go into a quiet room or something, and I'll just sit there and I'll I'll think about it. I'm like, what was that? And I go back to the experience, and it's like I have to go back to that moment, to that blip, to that one little. It's like my life is unfolding before me like a like a movie film <laughs> reel, and God just like put in this one little little scene, this one little subliminal message, right? That <laughs> <laughs> didn't belong, like a glitch in the matrix or something. And I go back to it. And it opens up this beautiful thing that I had never before supposed. And that for me is the, one of the ways that I experience God, that I, I, and that God shows those things to me. Is in these little glimpses, these blips of, of seeing how things can be. And in a lot of ways, that's how a lot of these, these gifts have manifest my, in my own life. So sacred moments when, You'd never really recognize, and I love how you explained that. It's just like for a second there, you kind of recognized what was going on, but it's like that. It's always like this little split thing, like, oh. It's fleeting. It's like, lest you start thinking that it's you, the Lord just takes it away. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Nope. Definitely doing this. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that goes back to that conversation we've had about this not being our work. Yeah. This is God's work. And we are, we are blessed. And I think that's probably the best word I can think about from, from a beatitude standpoint. We are blessed to be a part of it and to be a part of it as much as we want to be a part of it and to let that desire grow and to let it lead us into the wilderness of our lives where, man, God is going to take us into some places where we're like, where are we going? And we have no context to where we are. We've never been here before, but we have a certain peace amidst all the chaos and flux of, of our lives that where we are at is where God intends us to be. And I think that's one of the, the greatest blessings of the gifts of the Spirit is that when they are experienced, it really does add confirmation that there is a highly proactive God that is watching over all of his children. You know, that's what I like about verse 26 here. Kind of ties those up. And all these gifts come from God for the benefit of the children of God. Some of the context of this section has been talking to the church and about the church. And even the next verse is like the bishop of the church. But I just love that verse there where it's not exclusive. You know, it says, these gifts are for everyone. These aren't exclusive to members of the church or people that have been baptized or people that have these particular covenants or or this or that. It says, for the benefit of the children of God. I can throw an all in there. It's not there, but I'm going to throw an all in there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that is broad and inclusive, and that's what his work is. It's not limited to an institution, even if the institution has a particular purpose and message and, and mode of being to assist people, but his work is, is much larger than that. Well, Ben, I, going through verse 47, 
uh, or, or section 47, unless you have something more for 46. <laughs> I, I had a couple other things marked in there. I know we keep talking about it a lot. I mean, I just like verse 30. He that asketh and the spirit asketh according to the will of God, wherefore it is done even as he asketh. This uh, goes back to a discussion we had about prayer. And one of the things that I've learned about prayer is, for me, prayer is this process by which I'm allowing my desires and my ego and my narratives to fall away and allowing myself to be there with God so that I can really see things as he does and realize that my will can be his and that that really is for the best. And when that I kind of let that melt away and, and I'm there with him and in a greater recognition of, of who I am and my relationship to him, then he says, you know, you ask according to the will of God, wherefore it's done. Because you're not, in that moment, you're not fighting against reality. You're just, you know, you've used the word before, surrender. You're recognizing things for as they are and saying, that's good. Reality is good. And I'm going to accept it for the way that it is and be there with God in that moment. Then our prayers are answered, right? Because our prayers are, what is? Again, I say unto you, all things must be done in the name of Christ. So that just kind of goes along with that prayer thing there. And and I like how it ties into the surrendering our will to God because it kind of alludes to that intercessory prayer where Christ is saying, not my will, but thine be done. You know what you were saying there? That reminds me of what we've talked about, that it's like what Richard Rohr says, we live in a Christ-soaked world. And there's several stages of how we view God and and the way that Richard Rohr described it. And and I remember listening to this a couple of years ago, and it just about floored me the first time that that he, he said it, and that I listened to it, rather. And and it went something that the first way that we see God is usually in this way that the God's ambivalent to us that he doesn't he doesn't really care he's he's way out there if there is a God he's not really concerned about us um, he's just out there and that that stage doesn't last very long and it usually ends up that we come into this second stage where we see a highly conditional and a highly transactional God. And that God is one where if we do X, then God does Y. But if we do, if we don't do X, then God certainly doesn't do Y, but he actually does Z and destroys us. And so it's just this way that God is neither completely for us or completely against us. He's for us completely when we do what he says. But if we're not doing what he says, then he's actively out to destroy us, right? And this is this is a very common way of looking at God. The, the conditional, this is the one where we, a lot of missionaries who got on missions are trained in this way of thinking, that they have to be obedient, 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 and, and they, they can't be obedient, they can't receive blessings of baptisms or finding people unless they're being obedient because you know that's what the equation is you're obedient you get blessings and it's it's almost like observing the same event but interpreting it completely different whereas the third way of seeing god is that you see 
a benevolent universe with a Christ-soaked world where you are completely and perfectly safe in this universe. Now, this has nothing to do with your physical safety, as it were, but you have nothing to fear from a God that was vengeful and is going to come out to punish you and is going to be proactively coming against you. There is a God that is all love and all compassion and all grace and all mercy. And that this thing that we call justice and that we create for ourselves, the Cain narrative that we've talked about before, God comes and he sits with us through those moments of self-persecution and self-accusation. And, and so, yeah, you know, as you were talking about that, you know, those things came up again, those ideas came up again about seeing God in the universe in that universal, loving, and benevolent way. And I think the more that we really do let virtue garnish our thoughts unceasingly, that that really becomes the the foundation of our of just our day to day. And it doesn't have to be that you know we we think about the scriptures every single day, but we just remain aware in our present in our present mindfulness of the goodness and the love of God, and that when those moments pop up, when we start to accuse ourselves or others of anything. That we remember that the Savior paid for our sense of justice. You know, and you've you've talked about that a lot, Ben, in in really great ways, better than better than I <laughs> I think I'll ever be able to talk about it. Um, but when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit, my takeaway from this anyway is going to be how blessed we are that God gives us these modes to focus our intentionality into. It's like he's, he's like lays out all these tools in front of us to say, hey, listen, you have all of these modes that you can pick up and that you can start to pour yourself into, that you can start to experience me in this way. And by the way, a lot of these are interconnected with the people next to you. You can't have faith to be healed unless there's someone who has the faith to heal. You can't have the the gift to believe unless there's someone who is there to give the the gift to prophesy of Jesus Christ. You can't have administration unless you have a structure and people in the administration. All of these are actually interrelated and they and they deal with each other. And it really kind of goes to show just how much of uh, how much we need each other and why the second commandment is what it is. That we love God with all of our heart, mind, and strength in the first, but then we love our neighbor as ourself with the second great commandment. It seems to be those things repeat themselves quite a bit. Absolutely. That's a good point. So I, I guess we're ready to move on to section 47 and 48. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I have to say about 47 was just a commentary on John Whitmer. I mean, it's a really interesting piece if you go back and look at the history because you know, the section heading here has a quote in mind from John Whitmer. It says, I would rather not do it. So when he was called to be the the clerk to the prophet. So, I mean, he was he was the clerk and then he was called to, to be a historian recorder for the church. And he says, I would rather not do it, <laughs> but observe that the will of the Lord be done. And if he desires it, I desire that he would manifest it through Joseph the seer. After Joseph Smith received this revelation, John Whitmer accepted and served in his appointed office. <laughs> it's almost like, <laughs> I'm not going to do it unless you tell me this is exactly what God wants. <laughs> and Joseph's like, I can do that. 
Uh-huh. And uh, John Whitmer goes on to write the most meticulous history and minutes of all the meetings of the church. It's like he he literally writes down every single thing that happens. Like someone sits down in a chair, he writes that. It's like you make a, a step-by-step choreographed movie out of the stuff that he writes down. It's so detailed. <laughs> I don't want to do it, but if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. <laughs> it's right. Yeah. He's like, okay, if the Lord wants me to do it, I'm going to record every sneeze and cough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, section 48, we get into section 48 and, you know, this deals a lot with the management of the saints and moving to Ohio and about, I mean, just when you look at verse four. This is kind of like the Lord as Dave Ramsey. It's, it's, he, it must needs be necessary that ye save all the money that you can <laughs> and that ye obtain all that you can in righteousness that in the time you may be enabled to purchase land for an inheritance, even the city. It's a very flowery way to say it. It's, it's a very flowery way of saying, Hey, save your money until you can go save up to buy some land when I tell you to. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so in these kinds of things, the Lord needs to come down and to talk with them about. And I really do. I really love that these sections do exist, even though, as you said, there's not maybe a, we can always dig for deeper meaning. And, and I don't mean to say that we can't dig for deeper meaning in sections 47 and 48. Sure. But whereas section 46 gives us some immediate things to talk about, 47, 48 would have to dig a little bit deeper. But I do love that the Lord is mindful of apparently their either their inability or the fact that they're not focused on saving their money for anything in the future. It's just like, kind of spend it as you get it. Maybe that was something that they were used to doing, but the Lord's like, no, you need to actually do something else. And what would seem to be very common, sensible knowledge for us today needed to be reiterated and told to these guys back then too. So anyway, (laughs) gotta love that. Yeah. I I don't remember what section is. There's a section coming up and I'd have to look back again where he talks about how they're supposed to acquire the lands in Missouri. And he says, you know, you you can't acquire the lands. Either you do it by buying them or you do it by bloodshed. And if you do it by bloodshed, then you're going to have some serious issues. So you have to buy them, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so this is sort of the precursor to that. It's like, you know, you guys really need to save up because, you know, uh, we've got stuff coming. And if you want to live peacefully with the people that are around you, then you got to give them money. <laughs> And that's, yep. you know, that that's kind of how it goes. Yep. Well, awesome. Okay. Well, do you have anything else to say, Ben? I don't. Okay. Neither do I. Well, thank you everybody for listening thus far and thus far until the very end. <laughs> and here <laughs> we are. So until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you guys for listening. <laughs>